Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Drive Nation Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. With this episode of the podcast, we're going to get really geeky, even geekier than normal, because we're talking all about car handling. Um, now, we have done a podcast on a sort of similar topic, the art of road testing cars. There will be a little bit of overlap, but if I look at my notes now, I can see um, how much different ground actually there is for us to cover. Um, Andrew, we've been inspired to do this episode of the podcast off the back of what appeared to be a very palate-cleansing drive in a caterham. Oh, it was just lovely, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, just on the handling thing. I mean, to me, that's what driving pleasure is about. It's not It's not really about going fast in a straight line or, or anything else. It, it, it's, it, it's the way that a car feels, and that is, to me, what handling is. And, you know, and after all this nonsense we've all been going through for goodness knows how long, what, since lockdown in March, um, just to get back into a car... Um, that car being a Caterham Super 7 1600. Um, and just to have it all stripped back to what actually matters about driving a car, it was just, it was, well, it was quite literally a breath of fresh air, but it was also, um, I kind of fell in love with driving all over again. Um, and, and what struck me about this car was, and we've said it about things like your A110 and GT86s and others, um, that you know when it comes to it um you know as i said you don't need a huge amount of power actually um you don't need a huge amount of grip either and sometimes huge amounts of grip can get in the way and i just took this little caterham you know 135 horsepower 1.6 liter four-cylinder ford engine uh doesn't have a limited slip diff in it it really is um the simplest most basic form of that kind of motoring and I just whizzed it up to the mountains and back yesterday. Um, and I'm just thinking to myself, you know, somebody said, well, this is it. This is all you ever get to drive for entertainment's sake. I would be so cool with that. I would just, you know, because the feel of the car, um, the way that it responds, the way that it interacts with you as a driver, because it is light and because it is precise uh, and because it is low, and because it doesn't have a huge amount of grip and uh, and because its characteristics are so... Uh, wonderfully neutral uh, all these things which we will i'm sure get onto in time um to me that's what that's what driving is all about far more so i have to say than you know herring around a track in a thousand horsepower hypercar um so yeah so that's where i'm with it so i'm sort of i had a kind of a bit of a um a road to damascus experience yesterday although it was nothing it was nothing I should, if i thought about it, i didn't already know but it's it's always an education to be reminded of of that sort of thing and you know the kind of feels and sensations which made you fall in love with driving in the first place yeah and as cars get more and more complicated it's so handy to be reminded from time to time that simplicity actually is best when we're talking about you know the the pure aspects of of ride handling steering 
Um, it's it's simplicity and lightweight that's sort of key, isn't it? Um, let's just do a couple of minutes on that Caterham because I haven't driven one. I've driven many many Caterhams of you know different flavors, but not this one. <clears throat> what do you? Where do you stand on the the sort of retro styling? Do you like that stuff? I do, I'm afraid. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, but 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 th- but that is a kind of slightly personal thing because the first Caterham. I ever had, which was before I got into this business, uh, basically looked identical to the car that's parked outside at the moment. Um, <laughs> right down to it, to, to it also being red. Um, yeah, those um, those long flowing wings. I, I just love the look of it. From, not actually from well, I like the look of it from the outside, but I love the look of it from the inside. Um, so yeah, I'm a complete sucker for that. And I know people will go on about oh, yeah, but they generate too much lift. I'm not. I'm not sure I really care about that as long as the thing stays on the ground. Uh, and stay stable, which certainly at the sort of speeds you're going to be doing on the road, it does. Um, yeah, I, I, I love it. And if others don't, they don't have to have that. They can go back to having the, you know, they can have the normal cycle wings. While we're talking about caterums, um, I mean, there's there's such special and sort of individual things to drive. Um, just because they're they're so light, they're so small, they're so simple. Um, they steer beautifully. I mean, you'll drive a 911 and you think, well, this steers well. Or, you know, you might even drive uh, an Elise and you think, this drives well, but then steers well, excuse me. But then you'll drive a Caterham and you'd say, my goodness, this is what steering can be like when when the fundamentals are right. Um, And it's not just the steering, it's, it's feel from every corner, every inch of the car. You're just, it's like, a, it's like it really is like a big go-kart. You just can't fail to be hyper aware of what the car's doing how much grip there is in reserve you know all this stuff um and i think that's what makes caterums in particular brilliant cars to learn to drift in to power slide in um you know if, i've done a few of those sort of experience days in it might be the lower paddock at brands hatch or just a huge open car park somewhere and you're skidding around cones in a seven and it's brilliant and you you know you learn so much um and then you know you move away from the paddock brands and onto the circuit. They're, they're great cars to learn to race in as well. Um, and I, I've been fortunate enough to do both of those things. Um, and you just, if you enjoy driving, it's just an, an experience that you have to tick off, isn't it? They are, they are the kind of sort of ultimate trainer, aren't they? Because you know, a, obviously, they're incredibly well balanced, but. Because they are so light, um, there's not much momentum. So when they start to go, they never go very far um, because there's not much car to to gather up. And that means, you know, that gives you the confidence, which allows you to think to yourself, well, okay, the moment it starts to slide, maybe I'm not going to sort of go into sort of crisis management and just try to recover it. Maybe I'm just going to try and go with it and ride it out and extend the slide and actually start to drift the thing. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's, it, you know, that's how you learn how to do that kind of thing, which is why I guess all the sorts of places that you ever go, uh, to learn that sort of thing all tend to have, um, caterums out the back. Um, another thing about the caterum, and, the, and, the, and this may surprise you, but one of the reasons that I absolutely love this car is because it is so practical. Yeah. Go on. You won't expect me to say it that way, but it is. I mean, okay, let me, okay, let, let me, uh, stand that up. Um, you know, you and I love things like atoms, um, you know, and the Atom 4 to me is an absolutely fabulous um, car to drive. But as we also know, you know, if it rains, um, you know, you get very wet regardless. Um, you know, uh, you have to kind of wear a helmet if you're driving it uh, on the public road and, and, and on and on and on. Um, 
in a caterer. So I, I was uh, I was up in the mountains yesterday. We did a little photo shoot on the car, and just as it finished, the heavens opened, um, and I just popped on the side screen, tacked on the hood, got into it, turned the heater on, turned on my heated front windscreen, and I was snug as a bug. I really was. I was, you know, I couldn't have been happier. Um, you know, I'm six foot four. There was lots of space uh for me inside this wasn't by the way uh an sv this wasn't the big chassis this was a standard s3 um chassis um and i could have driven it as far as you like it's a car that you can use you know regardless you don't you're not sitting there thinking oh my god well you know the the forecast says it's going to rain for an hour at three o'clock this afternoon so i better not take the car if it does continue um there's also you know there's a little bit of luggage space it's just it does just enough to turn it from being a real sort of, you know, fair day of holidays type, once in a blue moon excursion car into something that you can really use. And, you know, and I've probably said this before on a podcast, but it is kind of my mantra that, you know, how enjoyable a car is, is not just how much fun it is to drive. It is how much fun it is to drive multiplied by the number of times in which you get to drive it. Um, and that is what I think, you know, caterums do so well. So there you go. That's my uh, that's my little treatise on how practical caterers are. <laughs> well, yeah, I, actually, I completely agree with you. Having that hood, um, it doesn't look like much, but it, it makes the car usable when it's raining. Um, yeah, and, and, and and the heater on the front screen, yeah. uh, and the heat yeah. and the heated front screen. You can just you know you don't just steam up in there. Um, it's absolutely fine. The wipers work well. Little stuff like that because I guess it's such an old car, such an old design. It's just been evolved and evolved and evolved over time, and it's kind of got to. It's like the shark, isn't it? You know, they they reckon the shark has stopped evolving because it has reached its hydrodynamically optimized shape. Um, and I think the seven actually got there a while back, didn't it? it did, they just can't within the format that they've got. They just can't make it any better than it is. So they kind of just leave it where it is, which is which is fine by me. And money, no object. Would you have a really powerful supercharged one, or the the most basic one you could find? Oh dear! I'll tell, okay, I'll tell, I'll tell you what I would have. <laughs> I'd have a car which doesn't exist. Um, but you know, to to the extent, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm really I'm thinking very hard about this. I, I I am thinking about not that I can afford this, and I don't know how I would do it. But I I am really I'm genuinely toying with the idea of saying can you do so the super seven is the sort of old the oldie worldie car which i've been driving that's the one with the with the flared wings and the spare wheel cover and the mini lights and uh, and all that sort of stuff and you can only get it with a 1600 now you know i'm not taking back everything else i said about back to basics and everything else but because i know me and because i'm a bit of an idiot i i just know that if i had 180 horsepower instead of 135 um and a diff. Uh, I know I'm slightly <laughs> contradicting myself here, but just go with me. So what, what I would like is a car which I don't think exists, which is the old world style, but with a two-litre donkey in it. So I don't want, a, I don't want an absolute whiz-bang, supercharged, up-the-wazoo sort of thing. Yeah, a nice 180 horsepower, two-litre Ford engine, but in that shape, with a diff, um, I would just shut up and love it forever. I really, really would. But I don't think you can buy that car at the moment. Whether they're going to go and do it um, in the future or whether I can persuade them to do one for me, I don't know. Um, and I don't know how I'd pay for it, but I, 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 I am, I'm in, I've got it bad. I've really, really got it bad. I was, I was on piston heads last night just going... Oh, the other thing, the, the other one that I want, and this mustn't turn into a Caterham podcast, but an old red top, you know, with a two-litre Vauxhall 
engine um, because that was such a good engine to have in a Caterham because it sounded brilliant running through twin 45 Webers. It had about 170 high horsepower, you know, straight out the box. Um, absolutely unbustable, wonderful performance, great noise. Um, and if I can't afford or if they can't persuade them to make the one that I want today, then I'd go back and look at a sort of 20 year old one of those. Anyway, mm. <laughs> very good. Sorry, side note. Yeah. <clears throat> just a little bit. Well, if I had if I had space, a garage or some you know a lockup or something, I'd, you'd have to have one in your collection, wouldn't you? Um, and f- so, last word on Caterhams, <clears throat> the the one that you drove in kit form was about thirty three, thirty four thousand pounds. It's expensive. It's, it's pricey. It's pricey. It, yeah. it, it is. It is a fair amount. Although you have to look at it in um, sort of context of its residual values, you know, unless you're going to keep it forever, I suppose, because the things barely depreciate. Yeah, it's true. It is absolutely true. Um, and, and this is what I'm convinced. Yeah, this, this is the man mass I'm going through right now because I'm thinking to myself, well, they don't depreciate much. Um, and uh, maybe I could get a bunch of mates to help me build it. Um, and money's really cheap to borrow at the moment. And yada, yada. And the next thing you know is I'll just have gone and done it. Um, and, well, you know, who knows? But There we go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I really, really want to. Okay. All right. Well, I think we got sidetracked for quite a long time there, didn't we? Let's get back to the topic um, at, at hand. So, what what is? It's a big question. What is handling? Do you think we can answer it briefly with something like the car's ability to <clears throat> um, to execute the instructions of its driver? Something like yes, that. Yes, that is absolutely it. Okay. That is okay. that is what I have always regarded handling to be. Uh, it's absolutely not whether it oversteers or understeers. Those are all probably quite minor facets of handling uh it is it is as you say it is a car's ability to execute the instructions of its drivers and and you'd be kind of amazed at how cars even modern cars fail in that simple regard um and you know you only have to you know everybody should do this they should take whatever they drive and go to a roundabout a quiet roundabout somewhere and do not skid around it just drive around it at a completely normal speed um, and because roundabouts tend to be circular, uh, what you should be able to do is enter the roundabout, put a steering input in, and without moving your hands, circulate that roundabout until the cows come home. And if your car doesn't do that, if it starts running wide or tucking in or whatever, then it's not going where you think or want to point it. And that means your car isn't steering properly, which means your car is failing the absolute first responsibility of 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 a car chassis which is to go where you point it yeah it seems basic doesn't it but yeah but you'd be amazed at how many cars can't do that yeah um okay so that's sort of the 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 core underlying principle of handling but what are the what are some of the, the the fundamentals some of the basics of good handling um we think balance good chassis balance proper weight distribution you know for the type of car in question i suppose i mean for me for me it goes well i mean it depends how back to basics you want to go with this i mean you know you know before you get to any of that um things like is the driving position laid out properly is the steering wheel actually in front of you are the pedals where you want them to be um can you heel and toe properly are the controls where you need them to be um you know if you if you constantly having to take your hands off the steering wheel to reach things that you need and i'm not talking about skidding around tracks i'm just talking about driving the car then you know to me that is as big a part or aspect of handling as 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 anything else is visibility i mean oh my goodness you know if you can't actually see out the car 
Um, and we may have talked about this before, but I mean, I had a particular experience where, don't feel too sorry for me, I drove an SVJ Aventador after a 720S McLaren. Um, and it was like getting out of a goldfish bowl and peering through a letterbox. Um, and when you've got a huge, intimidating car like an Aventador and you can't see out of it properly, um, it really, it really, it intimidates you um, and it knocks your confidence. And certainly cars like that, all cars are really, you know, the ability to inspire confidence, <coughs> excuse me, in the driver is, is, you know, as important as it gets. But particularly the bigger and the faster and the more powerful cars become, the more important that is. Um, and to me, you know, if you can't see out the car properly, if you can't see over your shoulder, um, then, you know, that is a mark against the car's ability to handle uh, because it just gets in the way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get on to things like steering wheels and that sort of thing. But, you know, again, crucially important considerations. But I think, you know, in the terms that you describe it, in terms of the actual balance of the car, um, you just want a car which doesn't do anything unexpected. Uh, and what it does do is fundamentally benign. Uh, I always go on about linearity. I would always rather a car which, if it were to break away, did so quickly, but in a linear fashion, than one which might break away slowly initially. And then suddenly you get into, you know, this your gain moment where the rate of lateral acceleration suddenly increases and you don't know where you are um and suddenly you've got to start moving your hands at different speeds to collect the thing and you know and you and i can both think sort of think of cars that um behave like that um you know whatever it does it must be progressive that's quite a long yeah. answer to your question isn't it that's <laughs> yeah, good though um yeah actually on that point <clears throat> so I'm i'm thinking sort of 80s supercars and even slightly more recently Renault Clio V6 something that yeah, exactly. you think you've got on, on you've got balance and then it'll just get away from you and then um, it's just gone yeah uh, and I suspect during this podcast I'm going to mention my own car my Alpine A110 a few times because one of the wonderful things about that is it's so progressive actually it can it can oversteer quite quickly but particularly the way it, it slips into understeer it's so progressive that you can really fling it into a corner knowing that it's not just going to wash out and immediately send you understeering into a hedge it will do that gradually and then it's sort of balanced and poised enough that you can come off the throttle and it would tuck in the way that it breaches its limits of grip very gradually particularly in understeer is just fills you with confidence yeah and and that's actually you know apart from it being good fun and confidence it's actually a safety thing isn't it you know i can remember um you know, engineer saying to me, even asking somebody, I think it was on the launch of the Tourist 7 GTI, which is obviously going back a bit, uh, and just asking why this car just understeered. Uh, and whatever it did, it was just shades of understeer. And if it understeered a lot, all you could make it do was understeer slightly less. And it being explained to me that this was safety because you didn't want cars that oversteered. And I just completely disagree with that. You know, if you if you are running away, you know, wide from... Uh, your apex and maybe you're about to stray onto the wrong side of the road you want a car that will over so you want a car which will bite back into the apex uh, and you want a car that will do that you know if you if, if you've got no more front grip and so you can't do it with your steering you want a car that will do that just by restoring that front grip by coming off the throttle a bit um, and that to me is as much a facet of safety as it is of fun um, and you're absolutely right cars like the alpine um, which just do it so naturally 
um, you find yourself not even thinking about it. You just find your car, yourself steering the car on the throttle without ever thinking about it because it becomes as natural a way to drive the car, particularly if you're on a track or if you're on a particularly good and quiet piece of road, as, as using the steering wheel. You're just constantly, you know, you set the general direction, don't you, with the wheel, and then you trim the car with your right foot. And that, to me, is the joy of driving. You know, when you're doing that with a car, then you're really having fun. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, I I don't think that grip, grip, grip is the way to go because it makes that more difficult because, A, you've got to be going a lot faster. Um, and, you know, obviously, in the context of public roads, you just get to a speed where it's just not either safe or, or, or even sort of socially acceptable to be, to be doing that. So um, that lovely... Um, balance and that lovely experience of just feeling a car just gently sort of adjusting itself according to your commands is is removed from you and all you have is grip and you know and so you just lose that one fundamental component of of driving pleasure um i had a very interesting experience a sort of salutary lesson in the importance of feel recently and feel is such an overused word when talking about car handling that it it kind of it's lost all meaning it's just become a vague term but for me it's a really important one and things like you've mentioned it already but the the you know the thickness of the steering wheel and visibility um it's all it all comes under the same the same banner as feel and i'm not just talking steering feel i'm also talking about the sense that of connection that you have with the whole car and it is it all it all bundles up together into having a a sort of intuitive understanding of what the car is doing beneath you um and and this experience that i had recently that really made me go oh wow okay yeah that's that that is fundamentally important i was i was driving a mercedes amg the clk 63 black series um this is the car from 2007 2008 um, a great looking thing, really cool car. Um, I was driving it in the middle of a storm uh, in Wales on a, a sort of hillside road. Lots of standing water, wet road, lots of standing water. Old tyres? Uh, um, no, actually. Uh, pretty, pretty, re- pretty recent tyres. Um, but it was hard work and it was intimidating. In some ways, that car's got a quite, you know, a really cool chassis. It's got quite trick suspension with manually manually adjustable dampers and it's clear that particular car has clearly been set up really well because it's it it manages a difficult road a very bumpy road quite well but it's got really taut closely controlled um, uh, body control as well so it works well in that sense but it had um, tires that didn't like a wet road and certainly not standing water it had probably the most hopeless steering I've come across for a long time in terms of sort of instinctive feel and intuition. It had it had no self-centre um, when you're coming out of a corner or even worse, if the rear is sliding a little bit, it had no sort of caster effect to dial in <clears throat> automatically some corrective locks. So, and, you know, and also when you put it into a corner, there was really no sense of it loading up and of the tyres gripping and biting. Um, so I had this pretty intimidating car with a shed load of power um, and also it weighs with me and a tank of fuel on board around 1800 kilograms um, and I just I, I at no point did I feel an intuitive instinctive sense of how much grip there was how hard the car was working 
um, you know, where the <clears throat> where the weight of the car was. And so actually it was not an especially enjoyable experience. Um, and if a car like that can't do that for you, then it just, you know, you wonder what the point of the car is, don't you? Mm. Yeah, I, I, sus- I suspect the conditions didn't suit it at all. But I'm sure, you know. I, but, but but cars like that should be able. To, I mean, I, I mean, it's, I had such a similar experience with with a rather more modern car with the Project Eight Jaguar, um, which I'd driven on the road in the dry, and I wouldn't say I was blown away by it, but I I could kind of see a place for it, and I thought it was fine at what it did, and then it rained, and I, and we were up in snowdonia and we had i think we'd been no we hadn't been on the track but yeah i think we'd been taking photographs and it was one of those ones where you know you you suddenly realize the bar's about to open so everyone's legging it for the hotel um and it was wet but it wasn't it wasn't sort of you know it wasn't flooded or anything like that It, it was raining and there were parts of the road which were wetter than others but i just lost all confidence in the car because i just didn't know where the nose was i just didn't know where the front end of the car was and what it was going to do and i ended up just um just bailing out of it and just you know sitting back and turning on the radio and, and not trying to drive fast because the car was actually more pleasant like that because i wasn't having to worry about it and and it's, it comes back to the confidence thing, doesn't it? I just had no confidence in it. Um, and it doesn't matter to me how fast the car is or how quickly it'll go around the corner. If you're not confident to drive it that way, then it's all rather academic. Yeah, confidence is really the key word. Um, when we talk about feel um, and visibility and all that stuff, it's just confidence, actually. That's what you can boil it down to, isn't it? Um, and that's where... Caterham sevens are so brilliant um they they flood you with confidence um i feel that <clears throat> I, I feel a similar level of confidence in my car um in gt 911s you feel that confidence um and that's what that's what's missing from so many particularly this black series um and that just as a, a sort of aside <clears throat> we've mentioned on this podcast before that if you put a limited slip differential into a car often um, particularly if it's a, a sort of passive mechanical one rather than one of these trick electronically controlled ones, they'll make the car understeer on the way into a corner. Um, but it occurred to me while driving this Black Series that almost what's worse than that is that it will make a car feel like it's about to understeer. Um, and the, if, you, if that's your first instinct for having turned into a corner, um, you, you just think, mm, okay, well, I'll I've got no confidence in this, and I'm just going to back out. It's 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 really unsettling. It does it does. LSDs do get in the way. I mean, some cars obviously need them, um, but I completely understand why. You know, the companies whose reputations are, are, are for producing the finest chassis in the world, and I'm talking about Lotus and McLaren here, don't do it. Um, they don't put LSDs in their cars because, for exactly this reason, because they. Um, they think they well they make mid-engine cars so you know the the and they have proper rear suspension geometry so they don't need the traction and what lsds bring in terms of incipient understeer um is is you know it is not worth the effort i mean this little caterham um i promise you i'm not dragging this back into the caterham so i'll only be doing this for a minute but you know, it didn't have a diff and okay the only time it was frustrating was we were doing some cornering shots um and it just it just wouldn't drift it just you know you just couldn't get it you know you could if you went into the corner ludicrously fast you could get the back out of line a bit just on weight transference with a big lift off um 
but you know that's i mean you're only you're only doing that because there's a bloke pointing a camera at you um there's there, there's no particular fun in it uh, but at all other times so if you were driving it normally not trying to make it perform for a bloke you know holding a camera um I didn't miss it at all. Uh, I just loved the the purity of the thing. Uh, I know, and so so to me, you know, the question isn't does the car have a limited slip diff? It's does the car need a limited slip diff? And if the answer to that is no, it doesn't, then I'd rather not have one. Mm. Yeah, interesting point. Interesting point. So one of the things I want to discuss as as we talk about handling um, is how it's developed to to the point where it is now because. I sometimes sense that engineers and also the, the technology that's available to them has evolved to such a point that some cars almost have too much handling or they're, they're so competent um, at dealing with their own mass and gripping the road um, that you can, you can find yourself hammering along in them. And this will be in a sports car. I'd, actually, I've, I've felt this in 911s even, Porsche 911s, um, particularly... Um, and this will open up a can of worms. When they have that Porsche dynamic chassis control system, the active anti-roll bars. Yeah, it's completely um, pointless. Yeah, and they that sort of technology, they make cars too competent. Um, and w- what it means is they have such high limits that you can be barreling along on a road and feel like you're getting nowhere near the car's limit of grip. And so the car just feels aloof and distant it's as though it's unimpressed with your efforts at you know extracting its performance from it and you know it might give you confidence but if if a car leaves you feeling that you've got nowhere near it then it's just as bad as a car that leaves you without uh, that makes you feel no confidence when driving it um and what I so yeah you know, you're you're right it, it it is a balance I mean the the sort of I've used this over the years so many times it's probably some kind of cliche but you know you want you know you're not or you shouldn't be sitting there you know in the audience watching a performance on the stage you don't even want to be you know the director you want to be on the stage you want to be part of it you you want it to be a two-hander between you and the car um and you're absolutely right that you know the the faster and more competent cars get the higher their limits become so the more difficult they become to access and the more clever the electronics are um the more removed from the action you often become and you know i think that car engineers think that chassis engineers often think that a car which basically turns around to its drivers and says sit there watch this um that's a good thing and i think we have to acknowledge that for probably the vast majority of people then it probably is because if you put the limits so so far in the distance they're never going to be broached and you make a car which is at least objectively um very impressive um then people probably aren't going to get into trouble in them and the sorts of stuff that we have talked about on this podcast and the sorts of stuff that i hope that people listening to this podcast will resonate with is not the sort of stuff that most people who go out and buy most cards have any interest in whatsoever um and they would think well hang on so you actually want a car with less grip um than more um 
how does that work? Isn't that dangerous? Um, you know, why would you not just want limits as high as, as possible? Because, you know, more is better, isn't it? Um, and, you know, people who read DN and subscribe to the podcast like this, no different. But, you know, I guess from the chassis engineer's point of view, job one, particularly when you're dealing with cars that are so fast now and have so much momentum, um, is that they, they must be safe. But the way that that happens does get in the way of of driving enjoyment um can we talk a bit about driver aids um and what your thoughts of them are how they should operate uh how i mean you must have driven cars and i certainly have uh recently where with my hand on my heart I would be quicker in them with some level of control because they are so sophisticated that basically you can drive them around a track like your pants are on fire and be unaware of any kind of intervention, even though it might actually be doing a little bit. But the only time you become aware that there's this sort of guardian angel looking after you is when you make a complete horlix of it and you find yourself running out of it and then suddenly out of nowhere, you suddenly think, ooh, it's all all right again. And for about a split second, you think, I'm a genius. And then you think, actually, no, there's something else going on here. Um, and I certainly know racing drivers and chassis engineers who, in honest moments with beers in their hand, will tell you that they are quicker around the ring in the cars they are developing with the systems on than with them off. But we also know they get in the way, don't they? Yeah, what you tend to find, I think, with, you know, I'm thinking quick McLarens and uh, Ferrari Pista, that sort of thing. Um yeah, with, with some degree of intervention. Um, I, actually, I think the manufacturers themselves will say that they're faster around a lap um, with the systems on at some to some degree than with them fully off, which is remarkable. And then you look at the sort of polar opposite approach taken by Gordon Murray with his T50, um, and he's developed the car um, to, to steer and handle properly without any intervention whatsoever, and then he bolts on a system just for safety purposes. Um, do you have a, a sense of which approach you feel more drawn to? I just like having the choice. Um, you know, I have, um, and I also like particularly cars that allow you to set them up the, the way you want them to be. And this is, I know, this is going a bit beyond um, safety systems, but you know, but, but then nevertheless, is about handling a setup and that sort of thing. So. Um, you know, it's great when, you know, you can, you, you, you have a menu and you can choose the throttle response that you want, the gearbox, uh, if it's a paddle, um, shift speed, that sort of thing, um, damper settings, um, steering, all that sort of thing. And, and, and I want a car that I can configure the way that, 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 that I want it to be. I also want a car which, you know, if I'm, you know, tired on my way back from far, far away and I'm not trying to drive fast, which, which is really got their eye on absolutely everything. Um, so really, I just want to be able to choose. Um, one of the things I love about, uh, things like GT racing cars, uh, is that they come with, uh, little dials for, uh, traction control and for ABS. And they usually go from about one to about 12. Uh, and you get this incredibly sort of fine ability to um, to choose what you want. And, you know, you can find yourself, you know, as you grow in confidence in a car, you know, knocking one or the other back um, a click or two. And then suddenly if it starts raining, then you can. And, and, and it just gives you that choice. Um, 
And I think cars should do that more. To me, it's not about whether the systems are on or if they're off. It's about allowing you to choose where you want them to be. Um, I, you know, I don't personally have a problem. I loathe systems that um, are never truly well, th- th- that are obviously never turning themselves off and they're always getting in the way. Or systems, and there are some cars which still do this, which, you know, you can turn them off, but only under 40 miles an hour. And then suddenly you, you do more than that. They all come chiming back in because you're, you know, it, the car is presumed that you're too incompetent to control it, that sort of thing. But um, people have often sort of proudly said off means off. And I don't really understand why that's so cool. Because if you get to a, a, a stage where a system's only intervention is to stop the car from crashing because it's recognised that you genuinely have gone too far, then that to me, that That's has to be a, a good problem, thing, is doesn't it? it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not really a problem. You know, <laughs> if you've got to sit to a system where we have, where the car is quicker with the systems on than off, so the car, the systems are frankly better than you. And if you think about it, it pro- they probably should be because we are all humans and we are all fallible. Um, then, you know, why not? What I don't want are systems getting in the way. I want a car which I can drive. You know, I, I think about the SF90. And if you have that in whatever it is, CT off, that's a car which will, you know, you can, you can literally run out of opposite lock. I can, I can remember coming out the Fiorano hairpin. Um, in, in complete stability with my foot absolutely hard down and no more lock. Um, thinking that I was some kind of superhero. But of course, what's happening is the car is just recognising that state, realising that my foot is still hard on the gas, um, and thinking, well, okay, so he wants to drift, so we'll let him drift. And it just maintains the angle. Um, And I guess some would say, oh, well, that takes away the skill of it, which it undoubtedly does. But, you know, when you're talking about, you know, a 400,000 pound, 1,000 horsepower, four-wheel drive mid-engine Ferrari going sideways at goodness knows what speed, then, you know, I think that's probably, for most people, a, a reasonable price to pay. Mm, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, one of the things that I find myself talking about quite often when it comes to handling, and it goes back slightly to that point that I made about the Porsche 911, particularly when it has the, the trick active anti-roll bars fitted, um, and you know you can drive some of these modern cars, these modern sports cars, and they they feel completely clamped down. They're so glued to the road, their body's so sort of stable and secure that they 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 don't feel they 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 don't feel exciting to drive actually. And you you find yourself chasing them harder and harder and harder, and they don't ever seem to come and meet you halfway. And so I talk about expressive handling. Um, I, I want to. When I put a car into a corner, I want to feel what it's doing, even if it's sort of slightly artificial. Um, and a good example of that for me is the Fiesta ST, the current one and the previous one. Um, because rather than clamp it down, which would be, you know, the sort of Porsche dynamic chassis control method, um, Ford really allows that car to roll quite markedly. And, and then also it rotates about its centre point, so it yaws. So it does those two things in perfect harmony. Um, and so you turn into a corner and you immediately feel the car working um, and being, being aware, being so conscious of what's going on in a corner. It's just a lovely sensation. And sensations, for me, is what, drive, is what, is what driving a performance car is all about. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I actually, I, you know, if it's done well, I do not mind if a car 
it has ever so slightly looser body control or if it rolls a bit or if it does it does a sort of very noticeable your movement when you turn into a corner i I think all that stuff is good you actively you you actively want it and i suppose we should make a distinction between road and track but certainly on the road um you know the porsche active roll bars i i I had a long-term 991 carrera s which had it and i think i switched it on once and there was nothing there was nothing about the way it affected the car, which I, which I thought it made it in any way better. It basically just it, it eliminates roll, um, which meant the ride disappeared as well. And there's, you know, there's no sensation of turning into a corner. And Mercedes had that system, which I've also tried and turned off instantly, which basically leans the car into the corner. It goes the other way. Um, and that just that just feels really weird and disconcerting. And okay, and to be fair to both manufacturers, you can turn. You don't have to have them. Um, and certainly the Porsche, you don't. You know, you, you have to pay for it if you want it. Um, and probably in the Mercedes too. So you know, the, don't tick those boxes. You don't need it. Um, but you're right. I mean, I I often talk about cars that breathe with the road, and there is a there's a balance to strike, isn't there? Because you're absolutely right. You don't want a car that feels completely tied down. But nor do you want a car that is pitching and heaving and wallowing, and you just and again, you know, back to the the A one ten and why we keep on banging on about it. It's just the kind of car that gets that right. Um, it goes with the flow. You can just feel the car gently writhing around without sort of you know being uh, 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 either falling over or being sort of you know, darting and deflecting off every bump because um it's got no it's it, it, it's got far too great a spring rate or, or or whatever um and to me the that's why i love you know lotuses and that sort of thing because they've always understood that you know lotuses lotus always set their cars up soft um it clearly helps if you've got a light car to to begin with but still you know they have a relatively low i mean they're not afraid to let their bodies move because ultimately it's not and I, I believe this absolutely fundamentally. It is not how much a car's body moves, how much it, let's say, in roll. It's the rate of the roll that matters. It's how controlled it feels. Um, you know, if it's you turn into a corner and the car just wants to feels like it's falling over, it's just you know gone off the side of a cliff, and that is horrendous. On the other hand, if it doesn't move at all, that's not much better. It's the rate of the roll, and as you know, and a car can roll, you know, a lot. Um, yeah, things like S-Class Mercedes, actually, um, when they haven't got the Pendolino thing switched on, do this really, really well. You can get a lot of body roll out of them, but they are controlled so well on their dampers that it's never, it's never problematic. Um, yeah, it is the rate, not the amount um, that matters with these things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a theory about handling, um, and, and particularly in the performance car sector, and it's that Handling becomes more and more important as the years go by because we've already spoken about the sensations of driving. And we know that as you as we switch to turbocharged engines and paddle shift gearboxes, the sensations from the drivetrain are diminished slightly. And then we look at electric powertrains when there are no gears and when there's no engine sound at all. Um, and all those sensations are lost. So increasingly, we need to draw sensations out of the handling. Um, and... It's, you know, w- w- without that stuff, um, electric performance cars, they, they can be massively fast, but how are they going to be made interesting and exciting to drive? I, I had a very interesting experience a couple of weeks ago. I was wor- shooting a couple of videos for car gurus. Um, I had a 718 Boxster GTS 4 litre 
um, and a Taycan Turbo. Um, and we're shooting video, individual videos um, on both cars in the same day. And the way that we shoot these videos is we, we lump together um, all the different types of uh, sort of footage that we need into, into one. So I'll do both introductions at the same time. Um, you know, one immediately after the other. And it also means that I'll do all the cornering shots in one car and then immediately switch to the other car. And so I had this really interesting experience of driving through the same sequence of corners probably 20, 25 times in the Boxster and then immediately switching into the Taycan Turbo, um, which was it, was, it was such an interesting demonstration of the difference between a true and really brilliant driver sports car and an electric car that sort of purports to be a sports car. Porsche sometimes calls it a four-door sports car. Yeah, it's um, analogue and digital. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the, the Taycan was no slower through a corner, quicker down a straight. It had just as much grip. But it comes back to this feel thing. Um, and, you know, just ha- ha- being aware, being a, being a part of that process of a car finding its way through a corner, um, the, the Boxster did it beautifully and the Taycan just didn't. Taycan got the job done very impressively, but it left your it, it left you emotionally un, unmoved by it. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Which is, you know, I, I certainly don't envy the current generation of engineers who are having to find a way to make electric sports cars genuinely engaging to no, drive. No, you know, but but the Taycan, and I'm not kidding, probably weighed what, a ton more than the Boxster. They're about close to, yeah. You're probably talking about a 1,400 kilo car versus a 2.4, um, 2,400 kilo car. And, you know, and, and sort of going on from that, um, and in terms, you know, you're talking about how electric cars are making this more difficult and with turbo engines, removing some of the emotion and, you know, the loss of the third pedal in the footwell. But also, you know, almost regardless of the car, you know, they have electric power steering these days and... You know, and they're heavy, um, and we and we know very well, don't we, that these are the things that you know most affect our driving pleasure. And if you look at all the things that you know that we like about cars, um, I'm going to go back to the Caterham. But you, know, <laughs> you think, you, but no, you think, but you think you have, you know, the Caterham. You have a car which it is manual. It has actually completely unassisted steering. It has a normally aspirated engine. Uh, it is rear wheel drive i mean if you just ticked if you just created up with a created a wish list of what you wanted a great handling car to have in terms of its configuration you make a caterham and now you go and you look at modern sporting cars and their turbo engines and their double clutch um, gearboxes and their weight um, and you know plenty of them have four-wheel drive and they all have uh electric steering and this and that and the other and you're thinking you know all these things are getting in the way we've gone from a point of view of pure driving pleasure we have gone in the wrong direction um and i'm afraid largely because that's the direction that the market has taken them in um because you know we are the exceptions in wanting cars to be the way that we do um and and not the rule but it is it is a shame and you know uh, we 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 talk about you know niche products like caterums and also more mainstream but still very small volume cars like the GT86 and the A110 and 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 the truth is the sad truth is that these cars don't do big numbers um you know these are tiny tiny quantities cars because there just aren't enough people like us 
um, for it to be important enough to, to, to car manufacturers to pursue those sorts of things um, in the mainstream. I think they are actually quite good halo cars. I think they're quite good brand builders because I think that they make people feel good about their brands, even if they don't own those particular cars, um, because I think people want to buy a car from a what they would regard as a proper car manufacturer. So I think the fact, oddly enough, that Porsche make GT3 RSs actually help sell um, Macans and Cayennes. Um, but, you know, it doesn't not make me sad that that's the way that the world has gone and that we feel increasingly removed from it and that the best drive I've had in many, many months, you know, has just been in a 1.6 litre car that was designed in 1959. <laughs> yeah, on on the GT86, um, I think we were sat in the same bar in Spain somewhere where um, a very senior Toyota engineer explained to us that by the skin of its teeth, the GT86 was considered a successful model. Um, you know, the whole the whole project only just sort of w- w- uh, wiped its face. Um, and <clears throat> you know, by such a tiny margin, we know there is going to be a new one, which is great news. Um, and hopefully they'll stick to the same sort of principles and ideology of it not being about speed at all, but about being uh, involving and engaging at, at even medium and low speeds. I wonder if your chums at if your chums at Alpine would feel the same way about the A110. Yeah, well, we we know, don't we, that uh, that these cars don't necessarily set the sales charts ablaze um, uh, because sadly it, it seems like. There are quite a few, quite a small number of us who actually prioritise all that stuff. Yeah, and and in the Alpines case, you know, I don't think they sell a lot of Renaults because of uh, Alpines because you know it's got a different name and a different look. And you know, I think out there the perception there's not that much perception of the connection between the two. But at least with the GT86, um, you know, there are other Toyotas who may be able to bathe in its reflected glory. I don't know, but um, no, it is a sale. I think we are we we are very much the exceptions. Um, but you know, happy to be so. Yeah, quite. So we've spoken a little bit about new technologies and how they often sort of get in the way of the driving experience. But I think we we should quickly acknowledge that with some cars, um, things like active anti-roll bars and air springs with various ride heights and four-wheel drive systems that can move torque, you know, between the four corners. Um, in certain cars, all those systems are um, do sort of confer an advantage. I'm thinking. Uh, tall cars in particular SUVs big SUVs yeah big SUVs absolutely yeah. Aston Martin DBX is a real a good case in point of a car with all that technology that and it benefits from it yeah no absolutely um, I mean particularly I mean I can remember uh, when I first drove a Bentayga and I was I was given a little they've got this 48 volt system on board um, which can vary the roll rate so greatly that effectively, if you were, not that you ever would, but you were driving your Bentayga around a track, there would be no roll. Uh, there would be almost, uh, I think they give it a tiny bit, uh, only for those reasons that we were talking about, because it just makes the car feel a little bit nat- more natural on turning. But then, you know, you, you, you go into your controller and you somehow off-road and you go mud plugging in your Bentayga, again, which you would never ever do. But basically, at that stage, it's effectively, in terms of the way the car behaves, um, it uncouples the anti-roll bars. So you have um, you know, all the wheel travel and axle, articulate, uh, axle articulation that the car can possibly muster in one environment and basically none in another. And when you're dealing with cars that are as compromised as big SUVs because they're so high and they're so heavy, 
being able to deploy that level of suspension control is absolutely critical. But it's only critical because the cars are such are so dynamically flawed to begin with. If you are talking about a very low sun car wearing only half a ton, and we may have mentioned one in the course <laughs> of this podcast, um, you don't need any of that at all. But then again, you're also not going to go off-roading in a cage. Not intentionally, anyway. Not intentionally, no. A few of us might have done that, but without meaning to. Um, okay, well, so in conclusion then, I think we're saying that when it comes to handling, um, lightness and simplicity generally is better. Um, and one of the, the core fundamental um, sort of pillars of it is the confidence that it makes you feel as a driver. Yes, it, it is absolutely... You can have... Um, the most, you know, on paper, dynamically capable car that's ever been created, capable of obliterating Nürburgring lap times. But if you get into it, and when you turn into that first corner, it doesn't keep you fully abreast of conditions underfoot, and you don't feel completely on top of it. And so much more so than ever before, because cars are going so much faster than ever before. They're so much heavier than before, so they have so much more momentum than ever before. If you don't have that confidence, the car has failed at its first job because you know it doesn't matter how fast it is on paper if in reality you're too bloody frightened to go and you know drive it the way it was designed to be driven then there's absolutely no point having it so yeah but i don't know um it's it's it's, it's it, it just strikes me as you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm not so i'm a slightly changed person after the caterham drive but um it's so easy, isn't it, for you and I to blase say, oh, everyone should go drive a K-Trip. And, and, and clearly you can't. But, you know, you don't, don't have to drive a K-Trip. You know, get into, get into anything that's, you know, light and nice. Um, An old you know, MX-5. You can go and you spend, spend a grand on a knackered old MX-5. And, you, and, and, you know, 80, 90% of the stuff that I'm talking about will be there for you, you know, right then. It, you know, these are not difficult things to go and to go and experience. Um, and you will find a response and a purity and a feel um that you just don't get in a 600 horsepower car weighing 1700 kilos with you know four wheel drive and you know all, all the bells and all the whistles um you will you may well conclude as indeed i have done that when it comes to the provision of pure driving pleasure that the simpler the lighter the better and it's you know and and everything else is kind of firefighting isn't it you know cars get heavier so they have to have more suspension control um you know and cars get bigger and more cumbersome and you know you you could just go on and on and down this road and people apply more and more electronics to peg it back to to re-establish some sense of how they should handle or stop them handling in a way that they would handle if left to their own devices whereas if you just get something that's small and simple and light it just does it automatically. We should label this one the Drive Nation Handling Manifesto. Um, <laughs> and I'd be, I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be really interested to hear from the listeners um, and see if, if people tend to agree with us on this or if it's just you and I uh, sort of ranting at one another about you know, what Disappearing we like. up our own fundaments. Yeah, exactly. So, so please do. Please do get in touch um, through Instagram or that you can find us on Twitter or wherever and just sort of let us know if, if you think we've got this right or if um, if we've sort of misunderstood what it is that you lot like about 
uh, performance cars. Yeah, that would actually be, that would be really, really good. I mean, it may be that there are lots of you who are thinking, well, hang on a second, guys. You know, I want a car that's really, really fast. I wanted to go round corner, corners because I love that impression and that feel of lateral G building. And it's just fun in the same way that getting on a roller coaster is fun. Um, and all this nonsense you bang on about, about oversteer and understeer and balancing, you know, that, that's not actually what normal people do. And, 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 you know, and if you said that, I might not agree with you, but I'd certainly understand why you said it. So I don't think that any of these things are necessarily to be expressed in terms of right or wrong. Uh, it's just what we think. And if you think something's different, then we'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to to see the response to this one. Um, well, everybody, thank you for listening. As always, please um, remember to go and give us a glowing review wherever you get your podcast and a five-star rating, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we don't want, we don't want anything less than that, frankly. Um, and uh, remember as well that you can find us on Patreon if you want to bung us a little bit of money each month, uh, patreon.com forward slash drive nation and there is some exclusive content in it for you um, if you do that Um, and again thank you all for listening and we'll be back with you again next week and and, and maybe slightly less geeky next week (laughs) oh i I wouldn't i wouldn't promise that we can try okay (laughs) bye everyone the drive nation podcast with dan prosser and andrew frankel A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.